Well, good morning, Poetry Baptist Church, again. And welcome. Today we are beginning a new series, a new sermon series, and we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. And so I don't have this all scripted out for how many weeks this is going to be. Um, there are 28 chapters, and maybe it's going to be 28 weeks. I don't really know. But I know that today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. So if you have a Bible with you, and I hope that you do, open up to Matthew chapter 1. Give you just a moment to get there. And then we are going to pray for time together. And then we will dive in and see what the Lord has for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the energy and the vitality and the excitement that those little kids demonstrated during our children's sermon, during Poetry Pals. Um, it's so fun just to, just to see the energy and the excitement that they have. And I pray, God, that that would be contagious for us, that we don't have to come into this place and play some religious part, that we really should be and can be excited about the fact that we have a Savior, you, Lord Jesus, who came to save. And we should be able to celebrate that, that we should be able to sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And that can be the reality of our hearts and our lives and our song today. We ask that your spirit would be with us, that the word would be preached powerfully in and through me, that we would receive it. We would go forth from this place equipped, not just to change our own lives, but to change the lives of the lost, the deluded, and the disillusioned to the ends of the earth for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 1, and so hopefully you're, you're there already. And I want to start off by reading just a little bit. In the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, it reads, depending on your translation, there is some argument about it, but I'm just going to read a little bit. It says, in my Bible, the HCSB, it says, the historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I put up here a slide that says, reality, Jesus changes everything. Because that's reality. Jesus changes everything. See, I did some research this week and I was doing some studying and I shared with Christine last night. I said, what's interesting is one of the books is saying that the first two words of Matthew's gospel, that there's no agreement, there's no accord regarding what those first two words even mean. I bet if we were to ask everyone in here, and we're not going to do this, but if we were to ask everyone from the very different translations that folks have, how does your Bible read? How does it begin in Matthew's gospel? There are things about a genealogical record, an ancestral record, a historical record. But the truth is, is the way that it begins is biblios, which means book, which is oftentimes translated record, and then the word for Genesis, the beginning. So it really reads, it begins saying, the book of beginnings of Jesus, that's the name Yeshua or Joshua, which in the Old Testament, Jesus' name means the Lord saves. His very name 
means the Lord saves. Christ, not his last name. It refers to him as King, Messiah. And then it goes on to say the son of David, the son of Abraham. Genesis, the beginning. And why that's important, why that's significant, what that has to do with reality, is see, if you were to turn in your Bibles all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what happened. See, God had a plan. And then when you fast forward and you get into Genesis chapter 3, we wrecked it. We wrecked that plan in our rebellion, in our sin. And then when you come to Matthew, after you've maybe read through the whole Old Testament and you understand all of it word for word, no questions at all, that's a joke. You don't have to understand the whole thing word for word, but if you get to Matthew after you've gone through the Old Testament and you see that sin is this perpetual cycle that has been going on and on and on since the very beginning, since Genesis chapter 3, and it, uh, this book opens up and it says, the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And what we may be missing when we read that is that it's the new beginning. It's the new Genesis. In ancient church times, there was no question as to whether or not what book should be at the beginning of the New Testament. Almost all of the patriarchs, the patristic fathers, the early church leaders, they all put Matthew as the very first book of the New Testament. And they did that because it made sense. It was the new Genesis. It was the new beginning because of who Jesus is. See, Jesus changes everything. And that's our reality. And that leads us into history. It goes on in Matthew, and I'm not going to read through the record that ensues, but in 1, 2 through 16, you can read about people like Abraham fathering Isaac, and Isaac fathering Jacob, and Jacob fathering Judah and his brothers. And the important part of all of this, the significant thing that stands out, is not merely the fact that Jesus can attach himself to this genealogical record that goes all the way back to the beginnings, it's taken all the way back to Abraham, but it's the fact that sin repeats itself. What we're going to spend time in in our Sunday school class as adults today is going through this very fact, is focusing our time on this second point, the history of these different people. See, our history is a history of sin. I'm going to let that kind of marinate, just let you absorb that, soak Soak that in just a little bit for a moment. Our history is one of sin. See, it doesn't matter if your name is Abraham or Aram or Aminadab or Solomon or David or Jesse. It doesn't matter what your name is. Tamar, Rahab. The reality is, is that sin repeats itself. That's our history. A friend of mine is a licensed professional counselor and I was talking with him this week, and he was sharing with me, he said when he was going through seminary, one of the exercises that they had all of the people who were going through the counseling program had them do was to first draw their family tree. 
your biological genealogical record. And then he had them go through something a little bit more detailed, sort of like a sin tree. What are some of the sins that you know of that are in your family history? And most of us don't really know a whole lot about grandma. We don't know hardly anything at all about great-grandma. But what we do know about mom and dad, what we do know about our aunts and our uncles, what we know about them is that sin has ravaged their lives, right? That's reality. And see, when we come to church on Sundays, a lot of time we like to say, you know, we want to keep that stuff out there. And we come in here into this sterilized environment. And we want to keep people at arm's length. And we don't really want to let people in. We don't really want to tell people the fact that sin has pervaded, has riddled, has ravaged our lives. And we want to come in here and when someone says, good morning, we say, good morning, how are you? Fine. And inside, torn apart because of the sin of our past. And the, the tendrils of it continue, even if we're saved, even if we know Christ. It still clings to us. So in the second one, history, sin repeats itself, is that we shouldn't feel too bad about the fact that sin is something that has ravaged our lives because it affected Abraham's life and it affected Jacob's life and it affected David's life. What we should celebrate, which we should focus in on, is that while sin is a systemic and perpetual problem, that there's grace in Christ. There's redemption in Christ. And that brings us to our next point, necessity. See, if we look back at the first two points, reality, God made everything and it was perfect and then we wrecked it. Sin entered into the world. And then we look at point number two, history, is that it doesn't matter really who you are. There's not a single person standing in here, including your pastor, who is free of sin. And what that should scream out to us is that there's an absolute need, there's a necessity for things to get changed, for things to get fixed that we can't do ourselves. When I was in seminary years ago, one of my professors said, so oftentimes the world will tell us that what we need, we hear it in music, we see it in movies, is that we just need a second chance. If we just had a second chance, then everything would be okay. We could fix it. If I could just hit the reset button, I know that I could go back in time and hit the reset button that I, I'd learned from all of those mistakes. Reality is, is we just create new problems and we'd sin anew in ingenious ways because sin isn't something that we can fix. There's a necessity. We need Jesus. All the generations before, all the generations after us. See, as young people, as teenagers, maybe in the congregation today, you look out at your parents, you maybe won't say it, but you say, you know, if mom and dad had only done things a little bit differently, maybe if my dad was this kind of guy, maybe if Tom Brady was my dad, maybe if Tom Brady was my dad, then maybe things could have been better. Things, I, I'd have had a shot. I could have been different. And my life would have been good. Maybe if my mom and dad were successful business people, instead of being poor, I'd have had a shot. But see, now I'm locked into poverty and all of the sin that goes along with it. And it's a lie. 
It's a lie that we tell ourselves because you can go to the schools in Highland Park and you go to the schools in the poorest communities in our area and you look at it and you know the, the one thing that's exactly the same is that all of those kids struggle with sin. It might look differently. The things that the kids in Highland Park have access to is different than the kids in the poorest areas of our communities, but they all struggle with sin. And so when we look out and we say, no, I just need a second chance. If, if mom and dad had money, if this, if this guy was my dad and that lady were my mom, then, then I'd have had a shot and, and I wouldn't really need Jesus. And see, that's the sin that comes up again. We want to tell our kids that, you know, if, you, if, you just, if we address your self-esteem issues, if you just had higher self-esteem, and I really don't think our, our kids have a problem with self-esteem. I don't. Our kids think very highly of themselves. Ask them, I don't need school. I don't really need you, mom and dad. If you just write me that check with this number of zeros on the end of it and set me free, I could, I could handle things. I could go out there into the world and I could make my mark. We can go into the Gospels and we can read about the prodigal son with the exact same story. And pretty soon he found himself longing for the food that the man that he worked for was feeding the pigs. If only. I don't really need you, Jesus. I just need some self-help. I just need some self-esteem. See, Jesus is the answer, and he's the only answer. Our next point is authority. I'm going to read this for you. After the genealogies ended, and in verse 17 it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the exile to Babylon, 14, and from the exile of Babylon until Messiah, 14. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, I don't know if y'all remember, we just went through a series on Proverbs, specifically focusing in on Proverbs 1.7. The Lord is the beginning of knowledge, intimacy, wisdom, life skill, and correction. And as I was preparing this sermon and I came to this point, it struck me that Joseph was a man who understood Proverbs 1.7. He understood the Genesis. And he anticipated the time when Jesus would come, the Messiah, the new beginning, who would fix all of the sin, all of the problems of the world, not by writing a book, a self-help book, but the fact that he is the eternal Logos, he's the word. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. He was open to correction. See, Joseph had the idea in his mind that he was going to divorce her. And when the angel of the Lord spoke, he allowed the correction to come into his life. And allowing that correction to come into his life, he demonstrated life skill, wisdom, 
which created intimacy in the relationship that he has with God. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and here it is. You are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That slide up there says, Jesus will save. Jesus will save. See, at this point, Jesus hadn't yet gone to the cross. He hadn't died that substitutionary atonement death that's required, the payment that was due. Matthew writes, and he gives us certainty about Jesus' credentials. He gives us certainty about the problem of sin. And he gives us certainty about the solution, that it's Jesus and only Jesus. And Jesus is the only one that has the authority. Our last point for this morning. Some of you may be looking at your, your bulletin handout and say, well, the pastor misspelled responsibility. Because it says respondability. I didn't misspell it. It's intentional because what I want to read you now is Joseph's respond ability, his ability to respond. See, many of us, like Joseph, we hear from the Lord, maybe it's not in a dream, maybe it's not audibly, but maybe we sit down and we read scripture. Maybe we pray. Maybe we understand the fact that Jesus really doesn't need to tell us again that it's his mission to redeem all humanity and for us, the church, to go out in the spirit of Abraham, Genesis 12, 3, to be a blessing to all the peoples on earth all the way to the end. To live out that purpose, to pursue, win, disciple, the lost, deluded, and disillusioned for God's glory. We've heard it, haven't we? We've heard it. And we sing about it. And we have Sunday school classes and we gather together in fellowship. We've got lots of books at home that we read about it. And the question is, will you respond? What will it take to get you to respond? And for Joseph, he heard from the angel of the Lord. And we might say, well, if I heard from the angel of the Lord, and what you've just done is you've diminished the authority of God's word. Well, if I, if I heard from an angel, then I would go out and I would do it. If Jesus would stand in front of me like he did to Paul, Saul, on that fateful road on his journey to persecute Christians, if he would just do that then, and only then, then I would be faithful. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant, give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Here's where I want you to dial in, respondability. When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. It's twofold. He married the woman that previously he was going to divorce. He married her. But 
you did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son. And, and, he named him Jesus, Yeshua, the Lord saves. Respondability. It's a short sermon today. I don't need to do a song and dance. I don't need to bang on the pulpit. See, there's a problem. There's a reality. It's called sin. It's not just your history, it's our history. It's your parents, your grandparents, and everyone all the way back to Adam. There's a Because of that sin, we can either be stuck as those fools on the path to destruction, or we can listen to Lady Wisdom when she calls out. See, we can listen, and when you get an opportunity like today, when there's an invitation at church, and the pastor says, if you've never responded, if you've never truly humbled yourself before God, if you've never been like Joseph and been obedient to the fact of whatever it is that God calls you to do, I am going to respond in the moment, right now. There's a need, and that need is met by Jesus, and there's a solution. And it's an exclusive, unique solution and the person, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the question today is, is will you respond? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the word. Jesus the eternal Lagos. God, that you make yourself, as scripture tells us, especially throughout Psalms, that your glory is revealed in creation, but it's also revealed in your word. It's revealed in who you are, who we are as faithful sinners. As David said in Psalm 51.5 that we read earlier in the service, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That's all of us. There's no one that's exempt. There's no one that has a hall pass that gets out of that. We all come into this world broken, riddled with sin, needing not just a solution, but needing you as the unique and exclusive solution. And so I pray this morning, God, that you would help us to respond. Because in our sin, we can't even do that but your spirit can speak in us and through us and to us. Make us aware to recognize the fact that we're still lost in our sin. That we're still rebellious. We don't need different parents. We don't need to win the lottery. We need to call out to you and you will deliver us from all our troubles. So during this time of invitation, Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in the hearts of this congregation and that we would respond. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.